Some of you might remember that a few years ago, actually several years ago, I left servants for two years to go down to Crystal River in Citrus County and to pastor St. Christopher's Anglican Church. I guess some of you remember. Maybe some of you didn't notice I was gone. But if, 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 that's where I, if you didn't, that's where I was. Um, it was a troubled parish. It had been through three crashes and was headed for a fourth. Um, the bishop told me to treat it like a church plant. And when my bishop tells me to go plant a church, that church is going to stay planted. And it's still planted today, six feet under. <laughs> but it just never reached a critical mass. It was a very troubled parish. Um, at any rate, uh, one Sunday, we had a visitor. Now, this hardly ever happens. happened. Uh, she was an Italian-American woman. She was from New York City, and she had just moved down with her husband. And her husband and one of the church members had played golf together, and then they had a little get-together, and she had said, um, uh, I miss going to church. I, I need to find a church around here. And so one of our members invited her to church. That hardly ever happened either. So she came one Sunday, and then she came back the next Sunday. That had never happened. And so after the service, we were sitting around. We met in an old doctor's office, and there was a reception area that we had chairs all around. That's where we had our coffee hour, which was nice because we could all sit in a circle and have a congregational discussion because there were only a handful of us. Anyway, we were just talking about whatever we were talking about, and there was a a lull in the conversation, and this lady smiled and said, you know, I like this church. Nobody here is born again. There was an awkward pause. All of a sudden, her eyes filled with panic. She looked like she was going to run from the room, and she said, don't tell me you're born again. As it turned out, some of the neighbors in her apartment building in New York City had been born again, and she wanted nothing to do with those people ever again. I explained to her what we meant and tried to explain to her the kind of people that she'd encountered, but she never came back. That phrase, born again, carries a lot of baggage, both in our culture and, in our, um, and inside the church. You know, Jesus uses a lot of metaphors, word pictures, and, and Jesus' metaphors really work. And it's interesting, I'll get to this a little later, that they seem to be aimed at particular people. Um, but this metaphor carries a lot of weight. I mean, what if you, uh, um, you know, one of your coworkers said, hey, hey, you go to church, well, what church do you go to? And you say, I go to the Church of the Living Water. They might say, oh, that sounds nice, Church of the Living Water, that sounds nice. Or I go to the Church of the Light of the World. Oh, light of the world. That's nice. I go to the church of the bread of life. Oh, that sounds pretty nice. I go to the church of the born-again people. It might be taken a bit aback because, like I say, the phrase carries a lot of baggage. There's a perception of what it means to be born again, both inside and outside the church. And in this popular understanding of born-againism, of being born again, there's... I think they kind of fall into two groups, this popular understanding, and it's not like they're contradictory. They can kind of work together, but it's like two images of what it means when someone says they're born again or, uh, or something like that. And, and the first of these um, is that there are some people in the world who are incredibly broken, 
like drug drug addicts and criminals and and prisoners and uh, homeless people and people who are at the bottom of society. And they hit the bottom. And they know they've hit the bottom. And they have some kind of deep emotional experience that they somehow connect with Jesus in some way. And it's like a cathartic experience where, they, where all the, the ugliness of their life comes rushing through them and they feel like they're reborn and they have a new start and they attribute this to Jesus and they look back to this emotional experience that they've had as, as the point where they turn their lives around. And then the second understanding of what it means to be born again, and these aren't contradictory and sometimes they kind of work together, is that there are some people who are really weak morally weak and they mess up their lives and they mess up their lives and they mess up their lives until finally they realize they need a strong moral framework because they keep messing up their life and maybe they decide to go to church I'll go to church maybe that'll keep me out of trouble and they go to church and especially a church that really pounds the pulpit and talks about what's right and what's wrong and what the rules are and has an answer for everything and there aren't any black and white, there aren't, everything is black and white, there aren't any gray issues at all and they've got all the rules here and they, they say a prayer and they start following these rules and sure enough they, they pretty much stop messing up their life. And these are people who are kind of weak and they need the stability and the certainty in, in hard rushing morality and a moral framework that they can live by. And they can adopt that and then they can get them, themselves back on track. And then there's this perception that kind of goes along with both of those. And like I say, they aren't really contradictory. That insists that, um, that these people insist that everyone needs to have the exact same experience that they had. And they're fervent about telling people about their experience. And, and they insist that everybody needs to have that experience. And even if they don't, they at least need to follow the strong moral set of rules. Because that's the secret to a good life. I mean, that's the popular understanding, I think even inside the church, but definitely outside the church, of what it means to be born again. But what is interesting is that the only place where Jesus talks about being born again is in this story with Nicodemus. He doesn't use that metaphor anywhere else. It's only found in this conversation with Nicodemus. And what's interesting is that this story of Nicodemus completely explodes the popular understanding of being born again. It's the only place Jesus talks about it, and it explodes what everybody seems to think it means to be born again. Nicodemus is not at the bottom of the social ladder. He's not down and out. He's not hit the bottom. He's not a broken person, particularly. I mean, any more than the rest of us are broken. Okay. He's not a lost soul in the you know, conversational sense that we use. He's a ruler of the Jews. We're told later he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a big shot. He's a rabbi. He's famous. Today he'd have a blue check next to his name on Twitter. Does everybody know? Oh, this is the real Rabbi Nicodemus, not some kind of phony Rabbi Nicodemus. He's the real guy. He's a member of the cultural elite. He's wealthy. He's educated. He's at the height of his career. He's at the peak of his career, and it's been a successful career because it's put him on the Sanhedrin. I mean, what more do you want? He's not coming to Jesus saying that he's down and out and needs a new start to life. He's a wealthy, powerful, rich man. He doesn't seem to be 
seeking anything when he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night. It was a dark and stormy night. I mean, maybe. Maybe. I mean, at one point, Jesus talks about the wind blowing. Maybe they're outside. Oh, they're on the, the roof. That's how it was in the flannel graphs when I was in Sunday school. So that's how the Bible has it. They're on their roof and, and uh, the roof of a house. And, and maybe the wind is, maybe the storm is starting to move in. And Jesus hears the wind and that spurs him to mention the wind. I don't know. I'm using my imagination here. But Jesus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And it seems like he's trying to do some backroom politicking with Jesus. He talks about we. First thing he says is we. He's representing a group. If you pay attention, the story of Jesus and the Pharisees is more complicated than I got from the flannel graphs in Sunday school. There's a strong element of, about the Pharisees who want to co-opt Jesus, who like Jesus, who, um, in fact, come to him and warn him when they hear the Sadducees want to have him killed. Is the Sadducees from the start want to kill Jesus because he's threatening their livelihood. But the Pharisees kind of have a, how, can, how does this guy fit in with us? response and, and, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus representing a group. He represents the establishment, right? That's what we hear about all today. He says, we know that you're a teacher from God and we know that these signs mean that you've come from God. Nicodemus represents the establishment and he comes to see this upstart politics, a populist from the, hick, from the hills who has come in, from hills of Nazareth who's come in to uh, to teach a message that people seem to be responding to and that in a lot of ways actually kind of resonates with the Pharisees. And, you know, some of us really like what you're doing, Jesus, and, you know, you can help us and we can help you. We want, we, maybe we want to work with you. I mean, maybe that's what's going on here. We don't know for sure, but maybe that's what's going on here. He's, he's representing somebody because he says we. He's not here as a spiritual seeker. He's not here because he thinks he needs help, but Jesus knows he needs help. And in our passage, he does not have some immediate emotional reaction. Outside of listening to Jesus, he seems to have no reaction at all. And I think listening to Jesus is part of the message that John is trying to pass on to us. I'll get to that a little bit later. He doesn't have an immediate emotional reaction to what Jesus has said. He doesn't have some kind of cathartic experience that somehow turns his life around. And secondly, Nicodemus is a man who has absolutely no need for a strong moral framework. He's already got the, one of the strongest moral frameworks ever invented. He's got the law of Moses. And he knows the law completely. He's a rabbi, a teacher. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus because he needs moral certainty or he needs stability in his life. Nicodemus doesn't struggle with moral, moral choices. Well, I mean, probably he does, but not an awful lot because he knows what the answer is. He's got the law. He knows the law inside and out. Nicodemus isn't someone who comes to Jesus because he needs to get religion. He's already got religion. He doesn't come to Jesus because he needs morality. He's already got morality. And the third thing that blows apart that popular misunderstanding of being born again, it's clear that being born again does not require a common experience. And I think John sets this up like this on purpose because the very next person Jesus runs into is the Samaritan woman at the well. 
You might remember that story. This is a woman who has an immediate emotional response to Jesus. Her life has changed in just a few minutes. And it's interesting that there Jesus uses another metaphor, living water. Why does Jesus use living water with the Samaritan woman and born again with Nicodemus? I'm not sure I know, but Jesus knew. He had to aim that metaphor at who it would hit. But Nicodemus certainly doesn't have an immediate emotional response to what Jesus says. And the story of Nicodemus has practically nothing to do with the popular understanding of being born again. So what does Jesus mean when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again? First of all, he doesn't say, you might try being born again. He doesn't say, you know, one option out there is the born-again experience. He says, you must be born again. And then he says, you must be born again. Well, first thing to notice, this is a metaphor being used once. It's not a technical term. I do want to point this out to Anglicans in particular because uh, all references to regeneration in Scripture, even in our own liturgy, doesn't mean the same thing that Jesus means by saying born again. The theologian J.I. Packer has an essay on this. If you're interested in exploring that, I'll pass it on to you. Regeneration doesn't always mean a salvation experience. But what does this metaphor tell us about following Jesus? Because it certainly means something. Because Jesus is aiming it right at Nicodemus. Well, first of all, it means a radical moral shift. It's not a newfound morality, but a new way of looking at morality. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. But he's not telling Nicodemus that he needs to get religion. Again, he already has one. Nicodemus is already a moral man. He already keeps the law. We know that for two reasons. First, he's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees take the law very seriously. And second of all, he's on the Sanhedrin. So everybody's looking at him. He can't be one of these Pharisees who kind of walks down this alley every once in a while. Everybody's looking at Nicodemus to see what he does. And if he messes up one time, then his reputation is hurt. So he's got even an extra burden, I guess, to keep the law. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, you have to be born again. What's that mean? That means for Nicodemus, everything you've ever done doesn't count anymore. All the work you've done keeping the law doesn't count. All that professional striving to make it in the career doesn't count. You have to start over entirely. That's the first point. You have to start over entirely. That's the message of Jesus when he says you have to be born again. He says everything you've done before doesn't count. You have to start over entirely. Now let me ask, who does this appeal to? What kind of people are receptive to this message? Everything you've done doesn't count, and you have to start over entirely. People who are down and out are people who are up and in. People who are at the top are people who are at the bottom. This message you have to start over. Everything you've done doesn't count. Good people are bad people. Who's receptive to this message? 
Nicodemus hears this message, and people like Nicodemus hear this message and say, what are you saying? Everything, I've, all the stuff I've done doesn't count. Well, I worked really hard keeping the law. Look at my career. I'm a success. What do you mean all the stuff I've done doesn't count? And then there are people who say, all the stuff I've done doesn't count. Wow. All that ugliness, all the bad stuff doesn't count. I can start over again? There are some people whom that message, you have to start over again, is a curse, and others to whom that's a great blessing. You mean, I get to start over again? You mean my status with God can start from scratch? All that stuff back there doesn't count? Who does this appeal to? People who are down and out or people who are up and in? That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, he's to the people who who are the good people, he says the pimps and the hookers are going to make it to the kingdom of heaven before you do. Why? Because they're inherently better? No, because they're open to that message. All the stuff you're holding on to doesn't count. To some people, that's good news. These are the people who get it. And then there's a radical psychological shift. One part of being born again is that one becomes a new creature. Paul uses that language, becomes a new man. Becomes, in a way, a new person. Now, you can overplay that, okay, because Paul certainly does talk about the battle between the old man and the new man, the flesh and the spirit. You can overplay that. But there's a sense in which one becomes a new creature, becomes a new man. It's not a radical reorientation, but a radical restart. It's not a new routine, but it's a completely new starting point. And that has to deal with what's at the root of the problem. You can't just start being better. You have to have a new starting point. Our colic for this today. The second Sunday of Lent starts off, Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Jesus is saying the Spirit of God must move. Nicodemus doesn't get this at first. Jesus says you must be born again, and Nicodemus says, what have I got to do? I got to crawl back inside my mother's womb and be born again? It's absurd. Well, it is absurd if you look at it from Nicodemus' perspective because babies don't born themselves. It takes the labor of the mother for the baby to be born. You can't just create a new atmosphere or a new environment or adopt a new regime, but there must be a, a radical restart. Let's say you've got an orchard full of orange trees. And every year you go out and harvest the orange trees and... Uh, one year you're harvesting the orange trees and you say, you know, next year I want peaches. I want to go into the peach business. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to test the soil and I'm going to get the proper fertilizer and I'm going to have the best fertilized orchard there is and next year I'll have peaches. Well, no, you'll just have bigger oranges. Or you say, well, what else could I do? I could prune the orange trees. That's supposed to be good for them. 
So you go on YouTube and you see where in between, which leaf on the branch you'd have to prune. Some of you have done that on stuff. And, and, and you say, well, well, and then you wait. All you get is more oranges. Somehow you've got to find a way to get inside the DNA of oranges, an orange tree, and refigure everything. And there's only one person in the world who could possibly know how to do that. And that's Dr. Andrew Hansen. He's not here today, but he is the universal expert on the genes of citrus plants. And I bet you he's going to tell you you can't do it. And if he says you can't do it, you can't do it. There's got to be something radically different being done. And that comes from the Spirit. The Spirit of God must move like the wind, Jesus says, and blow in a newness. Bring a new creature. And then there's a radical paradigm shift, a shift in what we need. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're a teacher come from God and that the miracles you've done prove that you've come from God. And Jesus just cuts Nicodemus off. I used to think that he wasn't responding to Nicodemus, but in fact, I've come to see that he is responding to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, we know you're a teacher who comes from God. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I I know I'm a teacher too. I teach lots of things. And yeah, I come from God. You have no idea how I came from God, okay? But yeah, yeah, I've come from God and I'm a great moral teacher, uh, but you must be born again. Jesus cuts Nicodemus off. Jesus says, if you want a great moral teacher, you came to the wrong person. I mean, I can teach you good moral stuff, but lots of people can teach you good moral stuff. In fact, you teach great moral stuff. You're a rabbi. Jesus says so. You're the teacher of Israel. You've had lots of great teachers. You are a great teacher. You want a great moral teacher, Nicodemus? Listen to yourself talk. You don't need a teacher, you need a savior. There's plenty of teachers. What you need, Jesus says, is a teacher. And then Jesus reminds Nicodemus of a really weird little story. It's a story from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. It's a weird little story. The children of Israel are living in their camp, and some snakes come into the camp. Where the snakes come from, who knows? But they bite a lot of people. A lot of people's bodies are filled up with poison. And Moses doesn't know what to do. Moses prays, Lord, what, what do I do? And God tells Moses to make a, make a serpent, make a snake out of bronze, make a sculpture of a snake, and put it on a pole and lift it up above the people so that when the people see the bronze snake on the pole, all the poison will leave their body. Now, there's lots of weird little stories in the Bible. Well, that was a pretty weird one. Who would have thought? Put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up where everybody could see it. Well, think about that, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Think about that. What's it mean for something to be lifted up and for people to have poison removed from their bodies? What's it mean to see something lifted up and for that poison to leave their lives. Well, for one thing, someone else is lifting up. What would that mean? 
for something to be lifted up and for poison to be drained from the body. What you need, Nicodemus, Jesus says, is not a new teaching. What you need is saving. Somebody's got to lift up something and that drains the poison out of the body. You don't need a teacher. You know, you can fail the teacher. Many of us have. The algebra teacher can teach you how to do quadrilateral equations. Quadratic? I can't remember what they are. Quadratic? Quadratic equations. See? I was one of those people that failed it. They can teach you how to do quadratic equations, but it comes to the test, you don't do it. You failed the teacher. The teacher, what the teacher tried to do didn't work. Or in my case, you didn't study. You can fail the teacher, but you can't fail a perfect savior. You can't fail being saved by a perfect savior when the savior is the one who's doing the work. Amen. And Nicodemus listens to Jesus. I think John is pointing us directly at that. The first thing Nicodemus says is 30 words long. The second thing Nicodemus says is 20 words long. The third thing Nicodemus says is four words long. And after that, Nicodemus didn't say anything. He's listening. And I think John's being very careful and very clever in telling us about Nicodemus. That Nicodemus is listening and thinking about what Jesus has told him. Because the next time we see Nicodemus is in John chapter 7, four chapters later. He's in the Sanhedrin, that ruling council, among the other rulers of the Jews. And the Sanhedrin are saying, what are we going to do about this Jesus guy? And Nicodemus says, you know what I think we ought to do about him? We ought to listen to him. I think we ought to listen to him. I think we ought to listen to what he's saying and then think about what we make out of him. Let's listen to him first. And then the next time and the last time we run into Nicodemus, he and another man, Joseph of Arimathea, are taking Jesus' body off the cross to bury it. And this marks a radical transformation, one of those psychological shifts. Joseph of Arimathea, another man, and Nicodemus, Joseph, we're told, is a very wealthy man, and Nicodemus, who has some wealth, they take Jesus' body off the cross, they prepare it for burial, and they lay it in the tomb. Something about seeing Jesus lifted up on the cross transforms Nicodemus. Somehow, it starts to come together for him. Now, how do we know that Nicodemus has gone through a radical transformation here? This is something 21st century Americans may miss in the story. We know that because Nicodemus takes the body off the cross, wraps it, and buries it. And for first century Judaism, that's women's work. It's the job of the women to handle the dead bodies. The men, especially rich men, and especially old men, don't do that work. Handling a dead body under Mosaic law makes you ritually unclean. That's women's work. Women do that. Once you know that, you see another thing that makes sense in the story. Why did the women come back to the tomb after the burial? 
to do the job the right way because men don't know how to do it. And I'm serious. It is kind of funny, but I'm serious. That's why they come back, because they know how to do it. Something has changed for Nicodemus that is so radical that he and Joseph of Arimathea will become ritually unclean, take the body off the cross, wash it, wrap it, and so on. And that has come from listening to Jesus and thinking about what Jesus says. And since I've already said that there isn't a, doesn't seem to be a common experience, then I encourage you to find your experience of listening and thinking to Jesus. How do we receive this regeneration of the heart, this new spirit? Well, it's up to the spirit for the first thing. The spirit moves where it moves, just like the wind. And one way the spirit moves, in Nicodemus's case, is by listening and thinking. So I encourage you not to seek to follow a formula to find Jesus, but to listen and to follow. You know, we have good examples of this in both our gospel and our, just after our epistle reading this morning. Two ways to know that God loves us. The first one we find in John 3.16. God so loved the world. We can follow a logical line of thought. God loves the world. I am part of the world. Therefore, God loves me. It's purely rational and logical. Paul tells us right after, after just two verses after we finished our reading this morning, he says, we know that God loves us because God's poured love through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. That's an experiential process that relies on an experience of, of sensing God's love being poured into our heart. Now, which one is better? They both work. They both lead us to the conclusion that God loves us. The Samaritan woman in our next chapter is going to have an intensely emotional experience. Nicodemus has an experience of rebirth that comes from listening and thinking. So I don't want to leave you with a formula. I want to leave you with the teacher and the Savior. Listen to Jesus Think about what Jesus says because Jesus is telling you you need to be born again. In Jesus' name, amen.